I'm your host, Rachel Conroy. In this episode, I sat down with Dame Laura Lee, CEO of Maggie's, and Angela Kale, Director of Consulting at MPC, about the cost of living crisis and what this means for the charity sector. It's not an easy listen as we delve into the triple-headed storm the sector is facing. Demand from beneficiaries is increasing, rising costs are impacting everyone, and there are already signs that people are giving less. There is definitely pressure on the sector from multiple angles, and every charity needs to consider what the cost of living crisis means for them. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good believes that everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners, and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. So here are Laura and Angela. So hi there, everyone. I'm pleased today to be joined by um, Dame Laura Lee, Chief Executive of Maggie's, and Angela Kale, Director of Consulting at MPC. How are you both today? Very well, thank you. Pleased to be here. Yeah, I'm really good. Looking forward to the chat. Great. Thanks, guys. Um, so we'll we'll start a little bit kind of learning about your journeys and how you got to where you are today. So um, if we start with you, Laura, what is your background and how did this get you to the position of leading Maggie's since its inception of the charity in 1998? Yeah, so my background is in um, nursing. So I trained as a, a nurse and then specialised in um, cancer nursing. And whilst working as a clinical nurse specialist, one of um, our patients um, had a um, recurrence of a breast cancer who talked about what the NHS wasn't doing. And this was you know, some 25 years ago um, in terms of supporting her and her family and friends. And so she had this idea that there was something else needed um, alongside what she felt was the, you know, the brilliant NHS. So it was really through a kind of her idea um, and, and her own unmet needs that Maggie's uh, was started as a pilot project in Edinburgh. And I happened to have the good fortune to both be her nurse, but also to become the first employee. So I suppose I've, I've grown up at Maggie's in terms of my career, and there probably hasn't been a, a job in Maggie's that I haven't had to do at some point because we've, you know, we've gone from a startup new charity to being, you know, today a sort of 25 million revenue um, with 24 centres. Great. Thanks, Laura. That's, I think that's quite unusual for someone to have been that involved in, in such a large organisation now as well. I hope, I hope the rest of the business doesn't come to you with too many um, questions about things that you've covered I've been at Maggie's for so long, I may be part of the problem, not, not necessarily part of the solution, but uh, so you'll have to ask my colleagues that. <laughs> I definitely think you'll do yourself a disservice there, Laura. But yeah, no, great to hear and great to hear about the background of Maggie's. Um, so coming to you, Angela, how how has your career path led you to your current position as director of consulting at MPC? Well, like Laura, I've been at MPC for a long time, but my in my prior life, I was in, in investment management, which is a, like a great job. It used to be brilliant. I used to go to Harvey Nicks at lunchtime and life was great. Um, and then I read 
the moral state we're in by um, uh, Julian Neuberger, which I don't know if you've ever read. And I don't think many people can actually say a book changed their life in all honesty, but a book changed my life in all honesty. Like I read this and it's about sort of how we treat some of the most vulnerable people in society and what it means to be like civilized. Um, and it sort of, I just sort of thought I'm wasting my life. Um, and that made me think I need to join the charity sector. And then I read about um, MPC in, in an article in The Economist. This is about as far away from Laura's story as it can be. Um, and applied as an intern to MPC. So where I'm similar to Laura is that I have done almost every job not um, and worked my way up over the years and been at MPC for 15 years now. Good Brilliant. Thanks, nothing, nothing wrong with staying in the same organisation over a long period of time. I, and I think the secret of it, isn't it, is that there's every year there's new challenges, there's new things to learn, there's new opportunities. Um, you don't always have to move job to, uh, to, to grow as a person and, um, and, and to grow your skills. Isn't that right, Angela? Yeah, and I, I like I'm well. I'm definitely a much different person to where I was 15 years ago, and the job is like hugely different as well. Um, and I th sometimes think, obviously, I'm a person who likes to stay in a job, um, and I, but I sometimes think that the people who flit jobs a bit never manage to truly tackle a problem and see it through and see whether or not the solution has worked. Whereas if you're if you're not a person who changes job every 18 months, you sort of have to find a solution that you're actually going to live with a bit more, I think. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And you know, Laura, you made the good point of there's different challenges every every year, every few years, um, even if you stay in the same role. And that kind of leads really nicely to the crux of our conversation today, which is, you know, the impact of the cost of living crisis, which I think we're all very aware will be far reaching for the charity sector. So what do the two of you see as the biggest challenges that the sector will face? Gosh, <laughs> Um, Big question. Yeah, do you, do you, will I go first, Angela? I'm, I'm you go gonna, first, yeah. You, you'll maybe have sort of different threads on it. I mean, the big challenges are, of course, we're no different than, you know, the charity sector is, you know, we're businesses running for um, uh, social impact for our beneficiaries. And, you know, Maggie's case is to help um, those people with cancer and their family and friends. So I think, you know, we had the you know, the, the, the unsettling kind of time of Brexit, um, we were just coming through through that and then obviously COVID came along. And so what COVID exposed for our, our world was that people with cancer from that lower socioeconomic um, environment were likely to have worse outcomes than, um, than those that weren't. And, and COVID in a way highlighted um, um, an existing problem and, and gave... Gave, gave sort of light to it. However, COVID has also made that problem even worse. Um, and so th there was, you know, some benefits to that, but then now we've gone into, uh, you know, this current economic crisis of which um, you're probably better placed, Angela, to give us what the projections are of coming out of it, but it's going to be around for at least another sort of two years. So what we know is that um, the people that, that are most vulnerable that we're here to meet um, are in a more difficult position, are going to have later diagnosis, uh, um, poorer outcomes, 
um, are struggling because of their own um, cost of living about being able to travel to hospital, undergo the treatment, to have time away from work, um, not going to be able to eat well. Um, um, so they've, they've got all of those issues. And then at the same time, we need to raise money to, um, to meet our needs in a climate that um, fundraising is, you know, is, is possible in an in a economic crisis. But when you've got people feeling financially unsafe and insecure, um, it's, even, it's even more challenged. So if you think that we've just come through COVID and the impact of that for the two years, I, I think this next two years are going to be even, even tougher on all fronts. And there's no furlough scheme. There's no kind of other things around that we can perhaps hang on to and, 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 and benefit from. So I'm not painting a very, it's, a, it's going to be a pretty tough, tough, fragile time for Maggie's, but I think for the sector at large. I don't know, Angela, what your your thoughts are on that. Yeah, if you wanted someone to be the uh, positive person on your podcast, Rachel, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be it. Um, like Laura said, it's like we're talking about it as a triple-headed storm. So there are some charities we're seeing rising demand. That's mainly people dealing with people in extreme poverty. So your food banks, your baby banks, those sorts of things. Almost every charity is seeing the impact of rising costs. Um, and that is affecting in lots of different ways through to staff shortages because you can't, place, can't pay wages, through to volunteer shortages, which I think people are sometimes a bit surprised by, a lot of which is to do with like you can't pay the petrol prices for them to go and travel. Um, all the volunteers have to get a job through to things like the price of the free bagel that you give out, give out has gone up, has gone up like 20%. Um, so that's the second of the triple headed storm. And then as Laura said, the third one is actually we're already seeing signs that people are giving less. And where I would disagree with Laura is so she, cause she said that, you know, charities are businesses for social impact they are, and, and I agree with that, but I'm not sure that's a very helpful way to think about it in terms of this, because unlike um, businesses, charities can't really put their prices up. You know, if they're commissioned for a service, it's very hard for them to go back and ask for more money, especially now with, like, it's not like local authorities have loads of money. If they're getting grants, again, that's a difficult conversation. And as I talked about the like, public are I'm willing to give more you know we still have to make that um so I agree I think it's going to be worse than COVID and I am slightly frustrated by the sector response because I don't think we're getting the collaboration the common asks that we were around the sort of COVID um so things like um one of the ways in which charities are like businesses, sorry to just completely pick on a small <laughs> phrase you say and run with it, is that we pay energy costs at the price of businesses. And there was very little in the budget yeah. about how that's being protected. Um, but yet charities are being asked to be warm banks. So we're not getting the sort of government protection, etc., that we were getting under COVID. I, I think that's absolutely right, um, Angela, that... Um, you know, um, about that sort of lack of protection. And, and in fact, you know, Maggie's is, is, is a warm place for people with cancer. Never thought that I would have to say that that's also a component of now what we're going to have to offer this um, this winter. And also, you know, thinking about food as part of our su support. 
Um, but I suppose where, like any business where you're in a storm, is you have to um, think about how to be as efficient and effective with the resources that you know you ha- you do have at your disposal and that are there. Um, and there's always opportunities for, for for being really thoughtful about where do we really focus on the spend. And it might be, you know, in our case. Um, it's not about opening our 26th and 27th centre. It's about making sure that our 24 centres that we have stay fully functional and operating um, um, and, and serving that community's needs. So it's, it's just flexing your, your your plans and being realistic about what you can achieve given the, you know, the, the, the market. But perhaps that comes to another conversation point about how can we help your point raised about government understand we're part of the response to this definitely yeah and I think you know you've both you've both kind of picked up there on not not being negative or that not being kind of the forum for this but I think at the end of the day you just said the word realistic Laura which I think is what we all need to be in the sector about what's coming and as we've said off the back of what hasn't been an easy three years um by any stretch of the imagination and yeah Laura as you said you know how how do we think charities can play a role in helping to address the issues of the crisis without being accused of being too political, potentially? Um, well, I think, I mean, there's the things that you can do within your own organisation. So thinking about how you take care of your own people, because um, they're, you know, um, charities are primarily, uh, if I take ours as an example, you know, 75% of our costs are, are, are the people that we employ um, to deliver the care. So, um, it, it was really important through COVID, but it's going to be really important that you take care of the, the culture and behaviours of your organisation and keep your people safe and well um, so that they can continue to um, uh, turn up every day and do a good job for the, for, the, for the folks that we need to look after. So I think that's one thing that as a sort of business leader, charity leader, we can do. Um, and then I think... Um, the, the political bit, um, which is, you know, apolitical, but it is about ha- being a voice for um, those people that were there to serve uh, about how this economic crisis is impacting them. And, you know, Angela, just as you pointed out, is, you know, if people are struggling to cover the travel costs for their treatment or going back to work too early, um, aren't able to think about the the, the things that they know will keep them well through 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 uh, through treatment, compromising their treatment and therefore compromising their survivorship. Um, you know, those are the things that we have to be a voice for for them for the, for the most vulnerable and 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 it's again in the cancer population that is those that are in the lowest socioeconomic have the worst outcomes. They they need us to stand up and. And, and talk about the, the issues and challenges that they're facing. And, and that's empowering, I think. And that means that we can still feel that despite all the challenges, that we're, they're not, their issues aren't being hidden. Um, and I think that's what our political role is. And that's to all parties, you know, current government and, um, um, and the opposition. And I think, um, so it's really important to remember that the sort of guidance around being political is actually around being party political. So Mm. it doesn't mean 
that you can't speak out these issues. And uh, there was that famous quote that I can't remember, which is, you know, everything is political. And I, you know, obviously, if you're struggling to put the light on or travel to your cancer treatment, like that is political. Um, and organizations need to be speaking out on behalf of them. We had a really um, barnstorming session on campaigning at our conference in October. And um, one of the things it's really made me feel is that charities need to be less frightened of being accused of being political. So, you know, very few charities fall, fall foul of the of the CC9 um, on that. What it is is more fear that they might do or, and actually we have this responsibility to speak out on behalf of, of, of those who are more vulnerable than us, who have, a, who have a, a weaker voice than we do and to make sure that their stories are told. And if we are not doing that now, when are we going to do that? Um, that's, so that's my perspective on it. Don't be worried about being accused of being political. Um, don't, don't, as long as you're sort of not being party political, as long as you're not saying who to vote for, you'll be okay. No, I think that's an excellent point, Angela. And I love that quote that you use that, you know, everything's political at the end of the day. And I do think that because on the whole in the sector, you know, we're quite caring, we view ourselves as you know, being there for people, we don't want to feel we're isolating anyone through potential opinions. But you're right, these these aren't opinions. These are just facts that people might not be able to drive to their treatment. A charity might not be able to switch its lights on so everyone can come in and, and raise the money that they need. So it's about, as you said, the system of pol- being political versus a political party. I think that's... And we only have to look sad back on COVID, you know, we did some things where we, um, you know, the issues of hospital car parking were, 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 were released for a period of time. You know, there are things that by talking about the issues that, um, you know, that could be done, that could make a difference to, um, to, to, the, to the experience for, for, for people. And, and, it, and it's the style within which one does it. You know, it's, it, it's um, um, the, the stories are real. They're not ours, they're, um, but they need to be told. Um, but we can still do that with integrity and, um, and humility and thoughtfulness um, to the people who need to, you know, need to hear them. And one of the things, um, Antonia Bantz, who works for the Trade Unions Congress, was speaking at our conference at this at this barnstorming session on, on campaigning. And one of the things that you know she pointed out is, you know, we know there is an election coming, right? There's, um, and we know that people will want to um, have their photo taken in their local charity. Um, so what a great time to invite them in and have their photo taken, but also explain to them some of the issues that are going on, because these things are not very obvious, I don't think. So much is around mortgages and energy costs, um, and that is taking up so much of the sort of media attention that some of these um, much uh, smaller things are not very well understood, I think. Mm. We did that um, uh, at the start of COVID, actually. We invited all of our MPs um, 
MSPs, um, etc., who are uh, whose constituents, you know, um, benefit from Maggie's and who are undergoing cancer treatment, so that they're aware, you know, that we're a resource to help them with their constituents, um, and um, and that, and and also to be offering up the solutions to some of the challenges that they're hearing day in day out in their. Uh, um, in their in their role, and that we that we can we can help solve the problem as opposed to necessarily being the the angry aggressor um, who who then doesn't feel like where they're where they're working alongside them to make people's lives that bit better and that bit uh, richer, that bit more sort of um, bearable. Yeah, and I think that's really good. The the words come up a little bit and. We talk a lot, a lot about in the sector, but it's collaboration. You know, the problems that we're facing, least of all the cost of living crisis, no one organisation, no one person can solve it alone. So those conversations need to be had as soon as possible. They need to be continuing and there needs to be no end until we're kind of collaborating together and, and coming to the solutions that are needed for everyone. Um. And Laura, you you touched on this a little bit in terms of what you're doing at Maggie's, but um, have either of you seen good examples what charities are doing to support their staff as well as their beneficiaries in this time? So um, I think, well, we have seen loads of good examples and I, I think that collaboration and partnership working is just to sort of touch on that. Is, is a is a good example of sharing the load and also you know almost doubling up what one can achieve by working together so you know we have a venue um, but other charities who don't have a venue can also make use of it so it's thinking about um, again through that lens of how can the beneficiary have access to more rather than um, keeping other people out and and um, and treating others as as competitors, um, and um, sorry, I'm going slightly off off of piece of your of your sort of question. I, I think in terms of culture and behaviours, I think uh, internal communications have never been more important. Um, um, you have to keep your staff feeling safe about money. Um, is there, are they going to have jobs? Uh, how are you doing on your fundraising? Um, um, and, and then I think you have to think about how you take care of your people. So we have a sort of staff supervision model um, where um, you know people can come and talk about their their, their feelings and worries, and then a kind of culture and behaviours model rather than a sort of disciplinary model. So I mean, every organisation's got their own approach to what works um, for them, but never as internal comms, if, if you like, as a function, <laughs> and be more important than. Through COVID, and I think you know, if if we learnt how important it was through COVID, it's going to be even more important to um, um, in, the, in the next couple of years. And you know, I react against the NHS quite a lot, and obviously, what we hear a lot is about how people feel broken, about how the culture is toxic. We know that people don't perform their best in those environments. Um, so, also, we've got an opportunity to. To lead with kindness, with um, um, with courage, um, working together. Um, so it's 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 
being open about how one does it, um, I think is is important. Angela, you've probably got more of the sector's view and what what you've seen that's good. Yeah, and I think, the, but the sector's in, a, as you were saying, in a really difficult place here. I, I mean, let's not forget that the sector doesn't pay very well. Um, we're big proponents of the living wage, but it's often not easy to actually provide that to staff. Um, and, you know, you hear sort of heartbreaking stories of people who really like jobs uh, in care, for example, who have had to go and work at Amazon because it just pays £3 an hour more. Um, and at this time, they can't, like, that sort of cost-benefit analysis for them is, is, is going the wrong way for the charity sector. So it's in a really tough situation there. So I think there's, there's um, organisations that are trying to do more around, around that. So seeing quite a few charities who have dig into their reserves to do a sort of one-off cost-of-living payment you know not not a bonus but um but a bonus in many ways so it's a one-off payment it doesn't go onto the salary base um but helps people through these times we've seen charities who are doing um hardship loans so you can now apply to your charity to to get a loan if you need to sort of unexpected costs come in we've seen um things like people signing up to discounting schemes and all of that sort of thing and then I think the other side of it is the sort of vicarious trauma that a lot of the charity sector is going through was going through under COVID where people were hearing really awful stories and situations often in a room in which their child was in the next door room and they weren't in that sort of mental space where they should be in order to be dealing with this. But if you think about like some of the really sort of horrible, really destitute people that some charities, um, sorry, horrible situations and destitute people, not horrible destitute people, just so that's clear. Um, So some of those horrible situations that charities are having to deal with the people who are dealing with that are sort of in quite a lot of distress themselves. So we've seen more charities um, doing more around supervision, like Laura was saying, or or sort of signing up to counselling courses and that sort of thing. But I think there is relatively little that the sector can do now because the sector was breaking point after COVID we you know we saw huge numbers of resignations um, of people who had worked flat out during COVID and it's just like no now I need a break and now they're back into crisis mode Um, so again I'm sorry Rachel not to be more positive but um, it's very we're, we're sort of eking out really thin reserves here. Yeah and as it as you said it's there's a cost implication to everything. And even, even the fact, maybe this is getting too political, but even the fact that we don't call them bonuses, because that could be a headline in a paper that none of us ever want to be a headline on, um, just shows how extra cautious a lot of people have to be in the sector when they're thinking about what they give their staff in return. So not only are we building on, as you said, coming out of a crisis point, they're also building on a culture that kind of doesn't allow a lot of a lot of charities to kind of display that appreciation the, to their employees as well. Yeah, and that that um, I, I mean that 
emotional labor kind of impact for um, people working in the sector. What's, what's also making their jobs harder is that the, the, the social care sector, you know, you're talking about care homes, because that's even um, more fractured. The things that we, opportunities that we had for helping people have also been, are, are harder. So, so your staff are in an emotional labor position. They're less able to help because the other infrastructures are, are tightened and squeezed and, and reduced. Um, and I, I think that's where, again, that's where one has to be psychologically aware and do the talking and help people um, navigate with realism what, what we can do and, and do well, as opposed to focusing on the, what we're no longer able to do, because <laughs> that can, you know, that can really demoralize your staff base and, and your people. And we need our people to stay well. Because when we come out of this two years, you know, that's an opportunity as well of, of holding your, um, your organisation in as good a health as you can so that, so that you can, can start to grow and help more people, um, um, you know, in the next 18 months to 36 months when things sort of start to, to improve, we hope. Mm. And we're seeing that all over the place. Um, I do quite a lot of work in the sort of very strange sector of charities who use the law. Um, And it's sort of interesting there. So take a charity who is helping asylum seekers to, um, to make their appeal and to get asylum. So they're sort of, as I was saying, listening to like really horrible stories of torture or, or something going on, as I say, during COVID, often with their sort of child in the next room, being quite worried about what they were hearing. Um then they can't get a win because there's the court system just currently isn't functioning. Like it's really dried up. So whereas, you know, five years ago, at least we're like, well, at least it was worth me hearing this and writing all this down because I'm going to get this person a win. Well, no, because there's no court system. So they're like, so I'm paid like half a quarter of what I would be paid if I worked for a proper immigration firm and just did footballers visas. And I'm, traumatizing myself regularly and I'm just not making the impact that I want to like it's a really difficult situation for staff at the moment yeah definitely I think uh, I think half the salary is being climbed there (laughs) (laughs) it's working on footballers immigration but yeah I think you know we've talked a lot about internal and and what charities doing and across the sector but how do you think charities could be talking to their funders and potential funders at this time So I I think that is the only way through for charities right now. Um, The cost pressures aren't going away. Even if inflation like stops being at the high level it is, we're still going to be on a higher cost base. So I think, you know, we were talking about maybe this will be over in two years. Well, it will and it won't be. Um, So I think the only way through is to is to talk to funders and I think that I'm putting funders in quite an unenviable situation here but I really firmly believe that sort of risks should be held by the people who 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 have the most capacity to hold them and that is funders so I think charities need to be talking about the changes in demand that they're seeing you know what are they you know how is it changing what's going on because I think funders are going to be really 
keen to make sure that money is going to where it's really needed like are they having to change service design are they you know cutting costs by putting more things online are they pausing some works um things like changes to costs are really important so like has a key resource gone up in price be that staff which is the major cost for most charities or something a little bit sort of more minor um and are there sort of changes to income are they seeing um things gone you know public fundraising going down are they having to turn down commission contracts or hand back commission contracts which a lot of charities are saying they're in they're in real debates internally about whether or not they should be handing back commission contracts because they're no longer viable um and i think you know we always say this and it's always true is that you have to be very honest with your funders um they are not in an easy position either they have less money they have costs going up so um they need to know everything in order to be able to make the most um appropriate decision and i think one of the good things about covid if i can say something positive on this podcast where i've been incredibly negative is that actually we saw that where you were honest with your funders it paid off like that that telling funders i oh, know we're just going to have to pause this didn't automatically result in the grant being suddenly pulled we saw that sort of much more trusting relationship happen and we and this is like this the next big test of it are we are we still there do we have that yeah so we saw that shift from um restricted gifts to unrestricted trusting the the leadership to spend the money where it was needed and I, I think there's a other thing of um, uh, compassionate conversations with the funders because of their own changed circumstances and, and working with them on as, as their circumstances may improve um, or, or deteriorate. You know, you want to keep those funders with you for the long term. So therefore, you have to have a compassionate relationship with them so that they may be for a period of time they're no longer able to help you. But if you if you are thoughtful about their challenges, um, they'll come back and help you when their circumstances improve. So I, I, I do think that 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 compassionate kind of conversation, understanding their issues and challenges, too, is is is, is really sort of the, the, the vital to um, funding success, um, both not necessarily in the short term, but in the, in the middle to the longer term. Um, yeah definitely and, and I'm and I'm kind of like uh, the other thing you know and the optimistic bit you, you know isn't it wonderful that the sector is here I mean you know despite all the challenges that we're facing um you, you know we are showing up um we we are meeting the needs of the most vulnerable um we're not walking away from it. We're just having to adapt um, to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And, and, and we do and we will. Um, and, and we'll learn some important things from it that will help us, um, you know, run our charities better, more effectively, more efficiently um, going forward. And this sector is like so um, resilient and adaptive, you know, it's really good at, changing depending on what it's seeing and I think one of the important things that really needs to be borne in mind during this crisis because this this entire crisis is all about trade-offs like where do you spend your money 
is making sure that we're listening to the users. So are we properly consulting our users on, on what they think is most important? Um, so is it is it worth spending more on electricity and not having biscuits? Um, and like, who knows the answer to that? Well, your service users do. Like, don't don't bother asking me that question. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. And being beneficiary led is so important in so many facets of uh, our sector. And I think, yeah, definitely in this case too. Go on, Laura, when we went into COVID, we were daunted about how are we going to raise money without being able to put on any events or to be able to connect or see our... And, and we did innovate and we did find a way through. You know, this is a slightly different challenge, I know, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we will, you know, we, we will... We will find a way through it, but the, the important thing in doing so is to is is to also be mindful of the organisational's good health, because um, we know that if you if you look after your health and well being, you you um you can be more productive and more effective, and um, and can come through with 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 um sort of strength if we don't look after the health of our of our organisation, with that primarily it's our our people. Then, um, that then 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 we'll have we'll see we'll see the consequences for our beneficiaries as a result. Yeah, yeah. The um, sector needs to remember to put its own oxygen mask on first. <laughs> That's a very good point way of putting it. Yeah, yeah very good point, Angela. Well, um, thanks, Laura and Angela, for being so honest on this topic. I think it's it's needed, even if we've said it's not the most positive messages all the time coming out but I think we've got time for just one more question before we finish the episode so if an organization is particularly worried about how the cost of living could negatively affect either themselves as an organization or their beneficiaries do you have any suggestions to signpost to them for support well, I think talk to your other colleagues. Um, certainly in, in COVID in those early days, I reached out to talk to other chief executives. Um, how were they feeling? Um, you know, leadership particularly is very lonely. Um, and, um, and so just before you make decisions, um, you know, just, just talk to your fellow colleagues. It's amazing how generous they were with their their thoughts and their advice and that feeling of not being alone <laughs> in, in, um, in, in, in leadership because that it's, that, that's, that, that's a tough place to, to be for the chief execs of, uh, of. I think as well as providing that comfort, the other thing that they're able to do is help you amplify your voices to go back to that point we were making about campaigning, you know, you, you'd like to be talking to lots of your colleagues in the same sector ideally and making sure that's fed into some of the umbrella groups so that, so that that conversation reaches those people who really need to hear it but the other place that I would really um, signpost you to is is your funders you know um, they are the people who perhaps can can make a difference um, so those are the most obvious ones I think but in terms of sort of tips and resources, there's 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 stuff out there on lots of the different umbrella groups. So MCVO has some information. We've got our own cost of living guide that we've put together. Um, and I know Pro Bono Economics is, is looking at sort of what the sort of landscape is looking at as well. So there's just plenty of sort of stats out there if, if you want them to help you think about the options available to you.
Great. Um, well, thanks both. I think it just leads me to say, again, fascinating um, discussion today. And I really think this one will really help a, a lot of our listeners a lot. Um, so we've kind of started that thing of, like you said, that knowledge sharing, which has come out a lot. This is the start for some people and we, we can help them to continue that as well. So thanks so much, um, Angela and Laura. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. big thank you to Laura and Angela for not holding back on the big issues for this episode. Unfortunately, unlike businesses, charities can't put their prices up, so it's vital that you have honest conversations with your funders and stakeholders in order to support your organisation through these challenging times. It's also the time to lean into those collaborations and partnerships harnessed during COVID to determine how we can come together through this. There was discussion in this episode on how charities can be political without being party political and remaining as that crucial voice for your beneficiaries. This is a great time for you to engage your local politicians, invite them into your service and really highlight the needs of your beneficiaries and why your organisation is vital to addressing these demands within their community. Whilst we cannot shy away from the fact that there are lots of challenges for the sector to overcome in the coming years, we can be proud of how resilient the sector is. We are still showing up, we are meeting the needs of the most vulnerable, and we'll learn something from these next few years that will teach us how to run our charities even better in the future. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to listen to Charity Chat. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode and how you feel the sector can really get through the next few years and the cost of living crisis. Find us on Twitter or LinkedIn to share your thoughts or email us on charitychatpodcast at gmail.com. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Askamit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. Forrester Falls for playing throughout the show and for playing us out now. I've been your host, Rachel Conroy. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>